And welcome to another edition of the Beer Bottle Podcast. Oh, I tried to do that too fast. <laughs> Off to, to a great start. Well, I'm trying to think of ways to mix up the intro because it gets a little dull. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Beer Bottle Podcast. Yeah, you're, you're doing your NPR voice because yeah, it's morning. Time. It's morning. We're doing an uncharacteristically early pod here. Yeah, due to scheduling difficulties. It is morning in Portland, Oregon. It is October, and it's looking very October-y out there. It's wet. It's leaves on the ground, gray. Finally. Actually, I'm, it's actually lovely, yeah. yeah I really, <laughs> really digging the, the return of the Oregon weather. Yeah, we'd had such a beautiful, sunny October, and it was freaking me out. So now the, <laughs> the rain and the cold is back, and I'm a happy camper. Uh, that's right. Um, my son, who's um, uh, 17... Declares that he hates the the sun and warmth. He likes the rain and gloom, um, befitting a, 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 a the sultry teenager, I suppose. Uh, anyway, welcome to the Beer Fun Podcast. With me is Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and now available for pre-order. Woo! This is breaking news. The Widmer Way. Well, I don't know how breaking news it is, but I got to make news to me. Yeah, well, I got to mix up the the script. You know, I thought you'd be. A, Excited to see something It's little pleasures. <laughs> uh, you can find him blogging, of course, at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University. Um, go Beeves, I guess. They're not doing so good this year. Uh, apparently not. Yeah. I'm not paying too much attention, to all, but yeah, it's not good. I think they're, they're sort of the, the, the team everyone likes to see come into town this year. <laughs> uh, it's all going to turn around soon, though, apparently. Because we've got a new coach this year, and he's going to make everything different, everything oh, better. Good to know. Uh, you can find Patrick <laughs> tweeting at Beeronomics. Uh, yes. So. Uh, By the way, that's football. We we won the national championship in baseball. So. <laughs> you're going to ride that horse. going to ride that. Got to keep that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was going. Uh, yeah. So today... We're going to do um, one of our, and this is one of the reasons why it's good to do it in the morning. We're going to be sober economists. We're going to have a beeronomics podcast. We're going to look into the findings of your, being a nascent economist yourself, uh, Brewer's Compensation Survey. Uh, you did this a couple months ago, um, so we're a, little, we're a little late on this, but we're finally getting to it. Uh, we're going to consider the question of compensation from the employee's perspective in the brewing industry, and uh, I'm going to put it in the context of some industry trends that I see, and I'm going to propose a, uh, I'm going to uh, show a puzzle and propose a solution. I'm going to see what you think. Ooh, exciting. Yeah, I know. It, the economics doesn't get any more exciting or sexy than this. <laughs> uh, so, we're going to, so get, get ready, folks. <laughs> When the, when the dismal science gets fun. <laughs> that's right. All you got to do is add beer. That's yeah. why That's why it's all yeah. beeronomics is the, the way to go. All right. Uh, we're going to get to all that soon. But of course, before we do that, we got to get to the news. In a weird case of unfortunate synchronicity, a couple of days back, three Oregon breweries announced they were closing. Sherwood's Two Kilts, Portland's Alameda Brewhouse, and Silverton's Seven Brides. Um, Alameda had been in business for 22 years and Seven Brides a decade. So this was an interesting uh, moment where just three of them went down. Yeah, and, and not too long ago, Lumpak, one of old-timey 
uh, Portland uh, craft brewers uh, announced that they were that they have a number of locations, but they announced they were closing their original location, um, uh, which is interesting. So we're starting to see what I would describe as the maturation of the market, and we're starting to see this kind of uh, churn. But it's sad always to see oldies go, like Alameda's been around forever. You know, I have talked, I think it's you. <laughs> I have talked with someone, I'm pretty sure it's you, uh, about how um, breweries, especially smaller breweries, are starting to resemble restaurants in that they seem to have like kind of a natural life cycle, which is not incredibly yeah, long. That's me. That's you. I've mentioned that a number of times on the pod. <laughs> so <laughs> glad that your memory is so sharp. Well, I think this is evidence of that. I mean, 22 years is, is actually kind of a, like if you think about a restaurant, that would be considered a long time. Yeah. And this is actually, I think this is uh, speeding up that this, you know, it used to be that craft beer was so novel that just the existence of it itself was enough. But uh, especially in a market like Oregon, but I think in general, just uh, the the rate at which tastes are changing, new types of beers are getting trendy, that you really have to be super nimble as a as a as a brewer now i think you have to be ready to to brew new styles you have to be ready to change your old methods um and i think that uh if you don't you know if you don't evolve or uh, fail to evolve at your peril perhaps <laughs> yeah um and uh i don't want to sort of um cast shade too much but uh i don't think alameda is a, an example of a, a brewery that's successfully um evolved with the trends very uh, very well. I think that's totally right. Um, and a brewery, to give a contrasting example, uh, I have a gaming group that I get together with every Wednesday, mm-hmm. and they are my kind of guinea pigs. I always look to see what the beer they're bringing and what they're drinking and what they like, because they're not beer geeks. They're just random Portlanders. Right. And uh, more and more, they're starting to bring Fort George, uh, which is a brewery, I think, that's kind of revived it's you know it's it's a uh, maybe 11 years old 12 mm-hmm. years old and there was a period maybe you know three or four years ago four or five years ago where it was starting to take on that that quality of like an older brewery you know it had an old ipa yeah, same old lineup yeah beers yeah i agree and then they completely they got they got cooking they started their three-way thing and it kind of sparked this kind of sense of creativity at the brewery and now they're really considered i think one of portland or oregon's kind of cutting edge happen in breweries and, and yeah and it very much is in part of you know part of the zeitgeist right they're one yeah. of those it breweries uh yeah the three-way being a collaboration with two with two other breweries that they do annually you got to do that if you want to you know if you're in your second decade and you want to yeah i think this is the new this is the new uh um industry where you really have to be very nimble very innovative very uh um uh very good at um keeping your your name and brand out there and fresh and not for nothing, but it's a slow process. Like when you do that rebrand, when you go through that thing, you don't just do it for one quarter and introduce a couple of beers and accept and assume it's going to happen. You know, in the case of uh, Fort George, it took years um, and they had to hold the line and really continue to release similar products. You know, they had a, that a plan they executed it. It took years. It finally paid off. But um, you know, I see a lot of breweries that come out and they're just, you know, they're casting around and they try a new thing and they don't stick with it and then yeah. it doesn't work. And the other thing, actually, I hadn't thought about this before, the other thing I'll say about Fort George is um, they've re, 
invigorated themselves, but they haven't rebranded themselves. That's right. And they still have the same logo. They still have similar looking cans they've always had. So uh, I think that's another good story, which is you often see breweries wanting to refresh their look or rebrand themselves without thinking about the actual product itself uh, enough, perhaps. So they haven't, uh, you know, they're still the same old um, brand, but uh, with a whole new sort of, I don't know, attitude uh, toward them from the consumers. Uh, okay, second news item. Longtime Coors chairman Bill Coors died on October 13th. Coors helm, hem, helmed the brewery from 1959 to 2000, Ooh, increasing its size from 300,000 to 45 million barrels. But his legacy is stained by decades of racist comments, lawsuits over sexism, and ugly anti-union battles. We were just discussing before we started the pod that we were old enough to remember when Coors had a real... Uh, taint to it. So in the 1980s, Coors was sort of, you know, if you were a good, progressive, young person, Coors was something you didn't, you didn't go near because of this issues. And then uh, in the 90s, they did a whole sort of corporate re rehabilitation, did lots of like good works and sort of scrubbed their history of that. And by the time that I moved to Denver in 2000, Coors was back being the, the, the proud the proud son of Colorado. Yeah, they actively pursued a strategy of uh, reaching out to the LGBT community mm -hmm. um, and the minority. They were they were doing advertisements in to reach minority audiences, which is a kind of weird irony that <laughs> Bill Coors must have um, found, you know found a, a little bit of a sour legacy after all his his time. That they've now become the gay and you know Latino and black brewery. Uh, I suppose, but I imagined his, his ultimate allegiance was to the bottom line. So uh, profits are profits. Yeah, that's true. But um, he also funded a lot of right-wing stuff. He was, his his uh, foundation was wrapped up in uh, the Koch stuff, Koch Cook. What? Coke, I think. Coke, yes, yeah. thank you. I, I knew it was one of those. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get to it. Thank you. So anyway, um, but he was 102 and he's dead and he was a giant in the, the industry. So there yeah. it is. Uh, but I, I, I just want to commend you because uh, I was getting a little tired of all the uh, obituaries that basically failed to reference or very uh, lightly uh, mentioned his past uh, racist and misogynistic legacy. So it's good that somebody points it out. And as someone who attended Lewis and Clark College <laughs> in the 1980s, you would not, I'm probably not shocked that I was the one to do it. <laughs> Uh, okay. All right. Final one. Um, in news that I broke. Kudos. I know. I never Mr. Break Reporter. News. Mr. Reporter. Yourself. I actually reported this out. Um, All About Beer magazine, which was founded a few months before Sierra Nevada Brewery, which is kind of amazing. That's how old it is. That is amazing. Um, is out of business. A little more than a year ago, uh, All About Beer purchased one of its chief competitors, Draft Magazine, uh, and it, which will also now cease as a source of original reporting. It's aggregated. They've the owner has used it as an aggregator site, so it's just sort of this spammy beer site now. I <laughs> know. Uh, in recent years, Beer Magazine went out of business. Celebrator Beer News ceased its uh, print issues, and Beer Advocate went from a monthly to quarterly format. Yeah, and so, it's all your fault, Jeff. Giving this free content away on your blog. Come on, man. Hey, man. I, <laughs> I, I uh, but I have a sponsor, so it's all it's all okay. I'm I'm legit now. Yeah, I'm getting uh, paid. <laughs> we uh, um, we sort of uh, uh, lived part of this because we were part of the very short-lived all about beer uh, stable of podcasts, online audio content, 
um, and that didn't go, that went nowhere very quickly, I suppose, that's the best way to put it. That's true. Um, it is a weird, it is kind of a weird and, and unhappy story because the, um, the owner who, uh, it's not actually a story of, um, of print, uh, you know, it's not the classic print media dying story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually really a successful, uh, the, the business model was sound and he hired John Hall, who we've had on the podcast, uh, to edit it. And John had, uh, boosted sales and, uh, uh, what do you call it? Someone, the number subscriptions. of subscriptions. Yeah. Um, circulation, circulation. Thank you. For. That's the word. Yeah. Uh, and he had a, you know, he had, He'd done all these great things. Um, he'd, he'd brought in a lot of great writers. He was trying to do this thing with podcasts. Like it was forward thinking, and it was and it was working out well. But it was it was just a classic business story, which can happen to anything. The the owner was made a bunch of bad business decisions, and so down down it went. Well, that's too bad. It is. So the beer in the beer news uh, world is uh, getting getting thinner and thinner. But I suppose that's good if you write blogs, right? If you write blogs, do podcasts. There you go. You yeah. gotta you now have a bigger gap to fill. Uh, okay, uh, that's the news. That's the news. So now we're going to turn to um, this uh, remarkable piece of uh, scholarship. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you laugh. I'm trying to pump you up here. Uh, no, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. So uh, you can give us the the background, but I'll just say what the product is is um, a report called "What Brewers Earn: A Report on the State of Compensation in the Brewing Industry." So why don't you tell me about how you um, how you went about doing this? Yeah, I just took a shot. Um, uh, at surveying people through the blog, so it's not a scientific survey. I didn't actually go out and do a sample mm-hmm. uh, and and do that. But I thought I I have a lot of readers nationally, and I know that I, just talking to people that I meet, um, a disproportionate number of them are actual brewers. So I thought it would be good to uh, I thought I had a chance to get a decent sample, and really the thing that I was concerned about. Um, Every year Labor Day comes around and I try to bring attention to the fact that brewers, the people who actually work in the brew house, mm-hmm. um, it's a hard job. It's a working class industrial labor job. It's like working at, um, uh, you know, a, uh, it's like working in Detroit on the, on the car factory yep. floor. It's hard work. And unlike in Detroit, these guys are mostly not represented by Teamsters and they often make uh, not a lot of money. And I try to bring attention to that because it is a, it, it's a, the, the compensation is, um, inversely connected to the status being a brewer is a high status job, but it's not a great paying job. Right. And as an economist, when we, when you were doing this, I, uh, either talked to you or tweeted you or something, uh, that as an economist, more information in markets is always good. It leads to more efficient outcomes. And, uh, I think for a lot of these people, especially since, Many of these are, you know, they they enter the entry level jobs at the brewery and maybe they work their way up, but they probably don't know a whole lot about what other uh, brewers make in other uh, markets. They probably know locally a bit more. That's exactly right, and that's really the in, the intention I had was I did this for the brewers. I wanted the brewers to have this repository of data, which was act you know as accurate as as it could be, um, and I did have a couple of uh, these this kind of survey is done, but it's usually done, uh, by people who, uh, provide it to owners. Mm-hmm. So owners can make decisions. Um, and the brewers never see it. So I wanted to make something public. So brewers had a chance to see that stuff too. And it allowed me to see, um, 
uh, once I started this, uh, an owner gave me one, a, a private study that had been done. So I was able to look at that and see how closely mine looked to that. Mm-hmm. And then the Brewers Association does it every other year. And, um, Bart Watson at the Brewers Association sent me his, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at that. So I was also, it was not scientific, but I was able to look at these other ones to see how close it looked. And yeah, and, uh, so that was, and great. I have some industry data that's broadly consistent with yours as well. So we'll talk about, cool. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, so, uh, you put out a call, um, for people to, uh, fill out a survey and respond. Um, the economist and scholar in me would have to just point out what you've already mentioned, which is there's a sample selection issue. Um, so this is, uh, not a random sample, but a self-selected sample of both those who hear, hear about your survey by being your readers or by being informed, uh, and then those who decide to, uh, to fill it out. Uh, nonetheless, as you said, your results are broadly consistent with other uh, data that have been procured. So what did you find? Yeah, and I'll just just pile on with that. One, one last thing. I was a researcher for 14 years, and um, I know that data, it all depends on, on your sampling methodology. And, yep. And um, so I was pretty, I wasn't really sure this was going to work, but I was hoping for the best. Um, I got, so I... Um, I try to, one thing I learned in that process is have simple, if <laughs> response rate is a big deal, yep. uh, the shorter the survey you can do, yep. the better response rate you get. So while I could have um, put a lot of questions in there that would have added some texture to this, uh, my response rate would have dropped. So I, I think I kept it to something like 11 questions. Right. It was really brief. Um, and, and only two of those had were open-ended. So, so first, what, what was your sample size in the end? How many? So my sample size uh, was over 400, but unfortunately, and so I had people send me um, their name and their email mm-hmm. just so I could look at that and kind of see if it looked like fake, fake, fakey McFakerson or um, <laughs> if there were some weird, if I got like three in a row that looked exactly the same, but they were from different emails or, um, and then it turns out, or if I got ones from Canadians, which, uh, skewed the data. So I had dump those Canadians. (laughs) So it was really, yeah, they're, they're great. And we love the Canadians, but, um, it's kind of Apple store and just, so I had to dump the Canadians and I did do a little data scrubbing and I ended up with 400 and 397 Mm -hmm. uh, responses. So about 400, which is not bad. No, that's, Pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was happy. I was shooting for a thousand, but yeah, you know. Wow. I didn't. I had no idea if that was uh, reliable or not. Well, Bart, Bart Watson immediately tweeted out, "Oh, you're never getting a thousand. And then when I saw his thing, I realized why he said that. They got about a thousand. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would have guessed something. Uh, you know, I would have guessed double digits. Oh, well, I did great then. Yeah. It's I mean, all it's, about expectations. It's hard to get people to fill out surveys. I had a graduate student last year who was doing a survey about uh, the Columbia River levee. It doesn't really matter, but the point is that she tried to push it out, and she had to um, uh, do the um, Amazon thing where you pay, they, uh, they pay people to fill out surveys. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was like trying to kind of get blood from the stone. Right. Um, yeah. I I had uh, hoped to provide enough information ahead of time so that people could see that it was valuable and that it would be brief and painless and then get people to fill it out. Well, it's also a testament to, to your your influence and, and uh, audience, right? So you, you have a fairly big voice in this industry and uh, so people both, um, and a respected one, so people trust trust you and are um, motivated to, to, uh, to do this. Well, I hope, I, 
it seems like that worked out. So I'm happy about that. All right. So tell us what you learned. Well, um, you know, you're looking at the the report, and I started out by saying what 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 people should earn. So I just thought it would be valuable for us to think about that. And um, you know, one of the things that came up in in, in my research in my questions, I asked where people were located in the country, mm-hmm. uh, and what size town they were in. And mm-hmm. immediately, one thing that was coming up um, that people were, were wondering about was, you know, well, I live in Seattle, and it's really expensive here. So if, if I make this amount of money, is that you know, that's, that seems great if I lived in North Dakota. But, right. Um, so I, I did try to capture that. And, and beforehand, I, I talked about what people should earn and pointed out there's this thing called a living wage, which is a way of measuring like the base, uh, the, like the lowest amount that you can be an autonomous functioning human in society. Yeah. And the living wage ranges from around $9.60 in really cheap places to about $10 more than that, like 1960 uh, in San Francisco, which is the most, uh, right. It's San Francisco is now substantially more expensive to live in than New York city, than yeah. Manhattan, which yeah. is kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, and port and Portland, by the way, for, for folks who just want kind of a comparison is 1374. So this thing ranges pretty substantially and, and it is a big deal. So I, I, you know, I wanted to look at that and show people what they should, could kind of expect in other industries and stuff and whether they should expect healthcare and all these other things. So right. there's all of that. We don't need to get into that. But um, I think if you want to look at the report, you'll find it, it is a little bit difficult to know, okay, I'm making this amount of money. Is that good or bad? Right. This can kind of help. Oh, and we should probably not get too far along before we tell people where they can go and view the report themselves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you weren't ready for that. Well, I wasn't. I don't have the link ready. Um, uh, I, w- I thought you were just going to say go to my blog. and You, you can, can go it. to my blog, but it's um, but then you got to kind of dig around. Why don't... Why? Well, that seems like a failure of a blog, my friend. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you're right. It, there's some... <laughs> I, uh, um, people who know who have been to my blog and see how pretty it is and uh, saw the old blog and saw how ugly that was. Yeah, I, I concur. You can see, you, this is the difference between this is the old blog is one that I designed and the new one is one that I did not design. And so I don't know how to link things here. And I got to ask Chris, Christopher McClellan was the guy who did this. Um, he's a beer guy. Uh, he's got a blog called the brew enthusiast. And at some point I'm going to have to say, Hey man, can we put this link up there? And I should have done that before we did this okay. podcast. But Maybe. this is this demonstrates perfectly my level of uh, <laughs> attention to detail and planning. I'm terrible at this stuff. Well, so. maybe you can put it up at the at the uh, Beervana blog Facebook page. I'll do that, and uh, maybe we can um, find it here as we're going. And I, oh, here it is! Here it is! I can. I, I see the link. <laughs> I see the link. All right, the downloadable. Oh, it's such a long URL. Anyway, go to go to the Ravana blog. Uh, blog and uh do a search for downloadable that will down downloadable uh report will give it get you the whole the whole report all anyway, right that all was right. was really bad podcasting right there okay back to the main what are you talking about that was scintillating <laughs> <laughs> exploring the recesses of jeff's mind as he tries to master technology is great. <laughs> no wonder you're a beer writer now we figured it out <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay uh, all right, so I want to know how much uh, do brewers earn? Well, let's start a little bit with the demographics. One of the ways that I was going to try to ascertain whether I had gotten an accurate or a, a representative sample 
was um, I had a few questions in there like, how big does the brewery work for? Mm-hmm. Well, we know that most of the breweries in the, the country are smaller than a thousand barrels. Oops. Um, and so we would uh, expect that the people who responded, most of them should work at small breweries. And, you know, that the, the, uh, the line should look, it should, it should represent the same distribution you see in, in terms of uh, brewery sizes. Right. And it did. So that was good. Well, but, it, but also, uh, again, talking about representative sample, I imagine that you're, you're heavily uh, represented in smaller breweries. Were there a lot of respondents from big brewers? No, that's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I uh, had many more small, uh, small brewery people who worked at small breweries responded. Right. Um, and then it just kind of went down the line. Like if you, if you pick a size, I had, I had eight, eight different categories. And if you pick any of those sizes, it, it roughly corresponds to, um, how many you expect to be in the distribution. So that was good. Um, in terms of, you want to go right to what people earn? Uh, you, well, you, you guide us. You're the man. Well, we can go to that. We can, we can go there. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting thing when you ask what people should earn. So, uh, the, uh, you kind of got a, this one reason you need a big sample in this is because you got different, um, different subcategories. So if you work at a thousand barrel brewery and you're a master brewer, um, you're going to earn a different amount of money than if you're a master brewer at a a million barrel brewery. Right. Right. So, um, you kind of got to have enough of a population sample so you can see these different cells and see how they break out. Right. So in general, um, if you work in the packaging line, this is across all brewery sizes and across all, the entire country, you earn about $34,000. If you work at the packaging line, if you're a seller person, you earn about $31,000. i am doing round numbers here. Mm-hmm. If you're a shift brewer, you earn about $33,500. Uh, lead brewer, $38,000. A head brewer, uh, 47 and change, and a brewmaster, also 47 and change. And this is an interesting little uh, quirk in the data, the difference between head brewers and brewmasters. Yeah. Um, you can be a brewmaster at any size brewery. Uh-huh. So um, people will list themselves as brewmasters if they're the only brewer right. at a 250-barrel you know, um, brew pub. Right. But that a 250-barrel brew pub is not going to have a head brewer. So. Right. Um, so it, it, it kind of skews the brewmaster data down a little bit. Right. Um, in terms of, um, salary by size is mm-hmm. really one of the, there's, there's three things that really affect your salary. One is the brewery size. Um, and it, it corresponds exactly to what you'd expect. The smaller the brewery, the less, less you make. And so it ranges, um, you know, if you, for the smallest breweries, less than a thousand barrels, you're going to be making about a, about thirty thousand dollars, and mm-hmm. this is across all brewery jobs. But if you work at um, a brewery that makes half a million barrels or more, you make sixty eight thousand dollars, and right. that's across all jobs. So, so here's here's where the economists will will interject the the uh, idea that uh, your wage somehow resembles the value of your marginal product. So if you're at a very small brewery, uh, you work just as hard. Uh, or maybe harder than at a big brewery, but you produce a lot less uh, per person, plus uh, at, at a less efficient scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a number of reasons why. But it's also, by the way, just completely um, randomly, it's true that uh, in general in in, uh, um, uh, in corporate America that uh, bigger firms tend to pay more than smaller firms. It's one of those empirical oddities that people have a lot of 
things to say about. Well, and when you're thinking about a small, you talk about economies of scale all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you're at one of these big breweries, um, I've, I've walked into breweries that are, you know, half a million barrel breweries and they have fully automated brew house or bigger, you know, like Carlsberg or one of these places. Mm-hmm. They got like two guys sitting in front of a computer. Yeah. So you can afford to pay them quite a bit of money relative to the amount of beer they're producing. Whereas if you're a little tiny brewery, margins are tight. You got three guys in there trying to get all the beer through. Yep. They're a big chunk of the expense. You really got to. Yeah, you gotta pay attention. So that's where that's that, one where that was a much better is. way of much better way of describing what the value of marginal product is. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I, I, yeah. I didn't uh, realize we were talking about the same thing. Which yeah, goes to show how ignorant I am of this stuff. Um, yeah, well, it's it's interesting in general that bigger firms pay more. Um, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about why that might be, um, but uh, in this case, I think it has a lot to do with exactly what you said. A lot mm-hmm. of lot to do with economy of scale uh, for breweries. Yeah, it's a funny thing that. Um, the inefficiency of the, all these small breweries means that there are many more brewer jobs in the country right now than there mm-hmm. were before, even though um, we've been at about 20, uh, 200 million barrels of beer produced in the United States for since the early 90s. Yeah. But there are so many more brewers now because so much of it has been made much more inefficiently. Right. So this is actually... Okay, so I'm going to jump in yeah, because, because this is my industry trend and my puzzle that I wanted. <laughs> but but dang it, you already solved the puzzle before I even gave it to you. Oh, so. sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, it's good. Um, so we know... I have this uh, report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, part of the Department of Labor. You know, So it's U.S. national data. Uh, it's a report about the brewing industry. This is, goes up from essentially 2006 to 2016 is the period they're talking about. Um, and there's a lot of that things that uh, uh, we can talk about. By the way, just just to give you some context, um, uh, now we have almost 60,000 people who work in the brewing industry, uh, in breweries across the United States. Um, and uh, that um, was uh, half of that as late as 2012. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, the number of brewery employees has doubled um, in the last, what now, seven years, something like that, mm-hmm. six, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I mean, you know a lot about these trends, but if talking about employment, mm-hmm. employment has just absolutely gone boffo. Um, uh, it's also true that breweries accounted for over half of the jobs gained in beverage manufacturing in general from 2006 to 2016. I'm just reading some of the headlines here. Uh, um, it's about 25% of all be- beverage manufacturing um, employment happens in the brewing industry. Uh, we know the number of breweries has increased more than fivefold from 2010 to 2016. So these are all probably fairly familiar statistics. Um, but... Uh, there's been a lot more jobs, a lot more breweries, um, and then here's my puzzle. You'd think that there's a huge demand for labor, and since uh, supply and demand determine uh, wage rates, you might think that that would bid wages up. But in fact, the, ac- the opposite has happened, that average weekly wages in breweries has decreased 25% from mm-hmm. 2006 to 2016. So that was going to be my puzzle to you. Uh, but we've already kind of discussed the what I think is the the, the, the correct hypothesis, which is that what's happened is uh, all this new or much of this new employment that's happening in very small breweries um, that are less efficient and uh, can't pay um, the same kinds of wages. But it also must be true that there is a very healthy supply of workers mm-hmm. because uh, you'd have to you, you'd still have to pay more to get people to work for you. And I think that this is. Um, uh, just 
from the fact that uh, it's considered sort of an attractive job. People are interested in it. People are excited about working in, in beer, uh, maybe until they realize how much of a factory job it is. Um, but in economics, we, caught, we uh, talk about something called the compensating wage differential, which is that you're, you're willing to take less to, to be in a more enjoyable job and you have to pay mm. you, you have to be paid more to be in a less enjoyable job or a less risky job. Uh, and so I think that this is uh, also a clear indication of that kind of compensating wage differential, that people are willing to accept less to work in this industry because it's something that they enjoy doing or, or like the idea of, of being a brewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an interesting, uh, this is, reminds me of, um, in terms of jobs, one, one question I asked is, do you have a, a relevant degree uh, mm-hmm. in, in brewing. So that would, that might be, you have a brewing degree from Siebel or it might also be your, you know, you have a degree in my, microbiology from, you know, whatever. Um, I just let people choose that themselves. One thing that's interesting in the last, that same period of the BLS, I think is probably a good. Oh, can I step on just yeah. one second? I just realized there's one last fact, factoid <laughs> that I wanted to get out, which is that, uh, producer prices for beer, uh, this is going to be before I pose the puzzle to you. Uh, producer prices for beer and ale in barrels and kegs increased 52% between 2006 and 16. So there's another idea where you might think, well, wait a minute, the prices are going way up. Right. Uh, there's a huge demand for workers. Why aren't we seeing wages follow? And again, I think the prices are going up because of it's these inefficient breweries that are coming on serving, uh, selling high-priced beer. So go, I'm sorry, now you go ahead. Well, and I think this is a thing that I hadn't probably fully appreciated uh, as I've been thinking about beer and thinking about breweries for years, uh, it, it, you know, even smaller, everybody was pushing to get more efficient. And this just demonstrates so much why that's a, a value to a, an individual brewery. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why consolidation is always going to happen. Cause yep. you want to, you want to, I, I mean, from an economist, that's like fixing the inefficiency in the market. Right. Right. So, um, that's interesting. The thing I was going to bring up is, um, you were talking about, all the new people coming into the, uh, the beer industry. Um, one of the things that's happened in maybe the last decade, uh, I think probably most of it's been in the last decade, is there's a whole bunch of new uh, brewing schools to train people to come in. Right. So this is one of those, I don't know what econ- how economics describes this, but if you have a big, you know, you have these effects and then you have these subsidiary effects. Uh-huh. And, um, I don't know what, what how that all interrelates, but it's fascinating to me to see um, I just saw recently somebody, some some um, university has invested a ton of money on a new fermentation sciences program. They're going to be competing for brewers coming in, and and um, you know they spent millions and millions of dollars to do um, yeah. develop a lab. Well, one of the things that universities love to be able to say, college and universities love to be able to say, is that our graduates get jobs, and so they definitely are interested in degree programs that are marketable. That where people then go off and, and can mm-hmm. find successful employment. Successful basically just being employed in their industry relative to their degree, right? Um, and so uh, it makes sense given that employment in, in breweries has doubled in the last six years that there's going to be this, uh, um, uh, this residual effect f- amongst universities that they want to sort of get on this. Um, they're, you know... Uh, times are tight all over in higher education, and so you, they're becoming more and more uh, market-driven, uh, I guess I'd say. Um, uh, yeah, and the other thing I mean, uh, uh, I was going to mention, um, again, I'm 
sort of jumping around a little bit here, but um, my brother had a, a, a career in, in brewing for a while. He's now left it. Um, but he went and did one of these degree programs, an old one at UC Davis. Uh, then the oldest. Start, the oldest. Then started brewing um, in California for a small brewery. Uh, and then got hired uh, at a big regional brewery summit in St. Paul, um, but went from being a really hands-on brewer um, uh, to a, uh, a guy who did crossword puzzles in front of a computer screen, literally. Uh, and then he, so he, he gave up his summit job and went back to a really small little brew pub uh, uh, in Denver and was basically the only brewer. He was the, the, um, doing it all himself for, for a single owner uh, and took a big cut in pay and benefits to do so. Um, but that's exactly what sort of we mean by compensating wage differential. He wanted something that was more hands-on, that was more interesting, where he was more involved in the creation and, and delivery of the product, and he could do recipes and experimentation. And so he was willing to take a lot less in order to have those kinds of freedoms, which is another uh, uh, um, topic, I suppose, well, uh, uh, a way that uh, small breweries can afford or, or, or attract people and pay them less is offer them more freedom and more involvement in in the creative process. Yeah, yeah, and we I, I did I asked people to include um, uh, comments if they had them, and um, that is definitely I heard comments uh, on that point. So, yeah. So you were talking about degrees. So, so what's the difference in pay by degree? Do they, does it pay off? In other words, so I don't, I know that schools will tell you come and get a degree and we'll get you a job. Uh, but it, it does pay off. Okay. Um, and again, uh, you would expect that the payoff would be greater, uh, for the higher, um, level you have in the in the brew house and that, yep. that's also the case so if you're a shift brewer so you've just got your degree and you get hired as a shift brewer mm-hmm. you're going to make uh three thousand dollars more if you're um a year if you're a shift brewer um you're going to make uh four thousand eh, dollars actually about three thousand same about about three thousand if you're a lead brewer so there's a, a little bit of a bonus but then it starts going up when you become a head brewer and brewmaster um a head brewer can, on average, a head brewer will make $45,000 without a degree, but nearly $52,000 with a degree. And a brewmaster will make $45,000 without a degree and, and uh, over $52,000 with a degree. Okay, so, and by degree, this is just any bachelor's level or, or above? Um, in the question, I said a degree relevant to the job you're doing. And uh, so um, okay. there are... Uh, it, it's one, it was one of those things. Open yeah. to their interpretation. Open to their interpretation. I could have I could have had a tick box and done all of that, but right. um, I felt like uh, this would just be. Um, I, I I was actually assuming that that would not be like an undergraduate degree in in, in biology, art history, or something. Well, that definitely wouldn't be relevant. <laughs> um, you can you can go on. I mean, there are fermentation science programs you can go to, like at OSU, which is one of the newer ones that's opened up, yep. and. Um, um, there's also Siebel specific programs like that, mm-hmm. um, German programs, and there's there they, there's short ones. There's like a ten week program at Siegel Siebel. So okay, um, I was assuming that that's what they were going to answer, but I I didn't right. um, I didn't do that. Fair enough. What's interesting is um, there's a much bigger, well not much bigger, but it's even more uh, the the bigger the bigger bump is time. The more the more time you have, the more experience you have, 
that mm-hmm. really gives you a, a much bigger bump in, in terms of how much money you earn. Yeah, that's true in, in U.S. wage data in general. Is it? Uh, experience is big, and uh, um, uh, tenure, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the, the term of art we use, but uh, how long you've been in the same, the same uh, uh, company. So I'll read you the kind of the poll quote on this one that I think is really valuable, which I bolded in the report. Uh, brewmasters and head brewers with five or more years of experience make double what their counterpoints, uh, counterparts with less than a year of experience earn. So right. you really you really get a big bump there. And there's you know, and that's also a that's a function of uh, selection too, probably in the sense that um, uh, you have to sort of prove your your worth as a brewmaster or you're out, right? So right. these are the people who've been a brewmaster for five years are the ones who've shown themselves to be right. very there's, good brewers. <laughs> there's, a, um, there's causality going both right. ways there. <laughs> so uh, as we know, uh, compensation is not just salary, but also includes uh, benefits. So you well, also asked about that. I did. Before we do that, oh, I'd, sorry. I'd just, these are interesting, and I thought I'd throw those out there. Um, and I'm actually interested to hear what your theory is. So I'm going to throw an econ theory back to you. Uh-oh. Um so I asked um, about town size and predictably uh, people who worked in a large town, which is more than 500,000 people, mm-hmm. earned more than those who worked in a medium-sized town, which is between 100 and 500,000, or a small town, which is lower than 100,000. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, the small town pays better than the medium-sized town. So I don't know. That's weird. Hmm. I wonder and, if... Uh, the, number, the, 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 um, the number of people working in those was almost exactly even across all of them. So it was like in thirds. So that was also interesting. Yeah. I don't have a a super great theory, except that maybe um, there's a number of small towns that are sort of touristy. And so you're getting kind of that, Mm -hmm. that brew pub bump uh, who can charge a bit more um, because of the transient tourist population. I don't know. The really interesting one. And uh, I think it's probably a page or two before the one you're on there is, um, Depending on the region of the country you're in, you get paid uh, kind of a, a like you get paid a lot more on the West Coast than you do in the South. And uh, I um, I went through and and weighted these because uh, you know there's all these other factors that affect salaries, including what job you're in. And I wanted right. to make sure that that was they were weighted properly. So these are these are normalized across salaries, and and it's really different. You know, in the South you make uh, the, Southern brewers get paid uh, thir- a little bit over thirty-six thousand, whereas West Coast brewers get paid almost forty-three thousand. Um, so, but when you if you uh, if you compare that to cost of living, how how uh, I mean that this, these patterns seem to make sense based on my general knowledge of cost of living differences. So, West Coast is expensive, Midwest, South are less expensive, Northeast is more expensive. It's hard to. Uh, disaggregate these variables. Is that mm-hmm. the right word? Am I using that right? Because uh, uh, maybe depends because, on what you have to say. <laughs> well, because the West Coast is expensive unless you live in uh, Hermiston, in which case it's not expensive at all. Uh, well, yeah, but on average. Uh, so you, you're correct, but I would say that this, this pattern represents the same sort of pattern you expect on average in terms of of cost of living. But so I so I think what you're seeing is that. But is it knowing what you know about? Uh, the economy is it is it that is it that different? Um, yeah, are the yeah it doesn't surprise me actually. Oh, all right. So West Coast is forty three thousand and South is thirty six thousand. So it's pretty big. But uh, if you look at, at you know uh, you have to be careful, right? Because 
South Florida is a lot different than other parts of the South. But, right. Uh, but in general, if you look at uh, averages, I think you'll find that that's sort of not too far different from the general cost of living differences. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's why I asked. That's why I wanted to bring this up because you're the economist, and I, I I was intrigued by that. I thought you might say, and I wondered about this. Mm-hmm. Um, these also kind of correspond to uh, the w- way in which the craft beer industry is. Uh, matured yeah and so you have people who are working you know been in the their career longer longer breweries bigger breweries so i thought maybe that had something to do with it uh yeah that could very well i i think that's a, a, a reasonable hypothesis as well so you have breweries that have grown to more scale in in these areas northeast and, and west coast for example mm-hmm. sure um yeah interesting uh, yeah, in terms of um, uh, benefits, uh, it is... Uh, By the way, this is where I really think your survey is particularly useful because there's probably a lot of wage chatter amongst brewers, probably not enough, mm-hmm. but the you know benefits are a huge part of compensation. Yeah, and there's probably like... much less understood about what kinds of benefits uh, breweries are, are giving. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, um, I was impressed with, with some of the, uh, uh, the benefits too. So I think one, one of the ways that people are getting, uh, good compensation and surprising to me was the PTO. And I, I did PTO rather than, um, sick time and right. I just did PTO and yeah. assume people would sort that out. Um, and 56% of the of my respondents uh, receive between 8 and 21 days of PTO. Yes, so PTO is paid time off paid for time our off. international audience. That's right. <laughs> this would be, if we have an international audience, all of this is going to seem like <laughs> we're talking about the Middle Ages here. Um, but, it's, um, but, it, but it struck me as, as pretty, um, more generous than I would have expected, particularly given that the large majority of the brewer the brewers who answered my survey worked at small breweries. Right. Uh, and that's going to be, um, you know, compensation is, is hard to, uh, it's one of those things that's, uh, the, the benefits are, are, can be expensive. And once you give somebody uh, vacation days, it's very difficult to take them away. You right. know, yeah. it's like a big thing. So you have, so people tend to be more cautious before they start handing out benefits. Um, healthcare, uh, I think reflects the state of healthcare in the United States. Um, I ans- I asked the question, do you have a good plan, a bad plan, or no plan? Right. And I, I agonized for a long time about how to ask that question. And uh, we have a f- friend here in town who's a brewery owner uh, who knows a lot about these kinds of things. And he was suggesting doing um, the amount that the, the uh, brewery pays. So right. whether they pay full amounts or all that. And yeah. I thought, um, I could do that, but that become, started to become complex. And I just thought, People have a good sense whether they have a good or bad plan, yeah. and I'll just let them answer. And in fact, what what shocked me was I had also asked whether they were the people who were responding were owner brewers or just brewers. Right. And many of the owner brewers who had a plan described it as a bad plan. Yeah. So I think I think people know if they're good or bad plans or not. And um, this was a little bit depressing. Only twenty nine people, twenty nine percent of people had uh, a good plan. Um, Forty four percent had no plan, and then twenty seven percent had a bad what they described as a bad plan. So I think healthcare is something uh, breweries could yeah. do a lot better on. And once again, for an international audience, if you, there is no good government 
<laughs> supplied healthcare in the United States. So it all goes to the private market. So you need, and it's all employer provided generally. Yeah. Um, there were, uh, you know, a few other benefits. Um, people are pretty good about providing, uh, training. Um, almost a third provide training. Mm-hmm. Um, almost a third provide a 401k, which is cool. 9% provide profit sharing, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um, 7% provide maternity and paternity leave, which given how masculine this line of work is, I thought that was all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of shocking to me. Zero percent, not a single person, uh, received any kind of childcare, which I think also reflects the masculine nature of this. But yeah. it's also kind of a big, big deal. I think so. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. Three hundred ninety-seven people answered. This is not a single one was offered any kind of child childcare support. Right. So wow, come on, guys, do better on that. Um. So, yeah. So there you go. That's kind of the upshot. I, there's also um, a piece of the report where I talk about the uh, kind of a qualitative look at how people responded. And mm-hmm. I think that's really rich, and we probably don't have time to go through that right now. But um, I would give it a look and read those because I think in many cases the dry numbers don't tell a story nearly as well as a single comment can. And yeah. Sometimes you read these comments, you're like, oh, that makes total sense. Now, like a lot of these numbers that I've just read, are put into a real clear context. Yeah. This is, by the way, just give you one one quick thing of context. Uh, the um, This is just average wages in breweries uh, in the U.S., just to give you sort of a, a sense of where your numbers are. Um, average weekly wages in 2016 were 969 a week. Um, so that roughly translates to about 50000 a year. Um, so it's roughly consistent. I would say the difference probably is that your your sample is skewed to smaller breweries, and this is an overall industry, U.S. industry uh, data, which is going to be heavily represented by big, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Coors kind of scale breweries. So uh, I think it's broadly consistent with yours. One thing I would, it is beyond the scope of your survey, but I'm fascinated just basically based on my own brother's experiences, uh, how high the burnout rate is in, in brewing. And, um, yeah, I'm interested in that too. Because that's another reason that'll keep wages down is if you keep, keep having to hire new people right. and there aren't that many uh, long-serving uh, brewers around. This is an interesting thing. And one of the comments, one of the sections of comments that really came up a lot was there were a, there are clearly a number of breweries out there, and I think they're probably larger breweries. They're not brew pubs. They're probably in the you know twenty five thousand plus range, mm-hmm. um, who have a strategy of paying uh, the lowest amount possible, and so the brewers go there and work for a time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a year or so until they have enough of the resume to get a job at a better brewery, and right. then they leave. Right, and it struck me as incredibly short-sighted and weird that you would that you would basically function as like a paid internship for other breweries. Yeah. Um, so that was really curious to me. But that is not a small, not an insignificant number of breweries out there are doing that. Yeah, it so. doesn't surprise me actually. Um, way to keep costs down, I suppose. Especially if if it's a brewery where you know you have like an owner brewer who's doing his or her thing, usually more his than her, but. Uh, and then just needs basically brewery, brew house help, um, but doesn't want to give up that kind of creative control. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is like for, I, based on the comments, it's like they're working, uh, doing keg, 
keg washing and cellar work, uh, maybe they're a line brewer. And uh, um, so it's a little bit bigger operation and they're just kind of cogs. It's like, you know, one guy can haul kegs as good as the next one. So we're not going to pay you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is, you know, I'm sure that's every single industry is going to have people who have these different philosophies and yeah. you, you know, brewers uh, will make their decisions based on that. Um, right. And, and another, to your point, um, from the brewer perspective, one of the, the best perks and I air quote perk is a sense that, uh, the job they are in has, a a, a ladder, a career path. Mm-hmm. And if they, if it does, they would even be willing to work, you know, pretty crappy job, early on for not very much money. If they see that other people do that as a way of uh, working their way up and that there is a way to get, you know, higher in, in that company and like have, make a career out of it. Yeah. Knowledge of that is, um, one of the most powerful incentives for brewers. Yeah. I'm reminded of my short career as a UPS driver <laughs> which, and that, which would, you refer a lot. I, to. Yeah. Well, it's my only other career. So. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was short, but it, but it was positive. You had a very positive re- re- memories of that. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, sometimes when I'm annoyed at my students, I think I could still just be driving a truck around. Uh, <laughs> no, but actually, one of the, I was about to say that one of the big selling points they have, especially if you start, most people uh, don't start as drivers. I was lucky. Most people start as loaders, in the, but they make a big deal about how much of the corporate uh, uh, officers, uh, you know, all the all the management level and above, um, uh, started off as uh, drivers, loaders, and drivers that they yeah. that they're very committed to to um, promoting from within. So it, it, I think it helps a lot in terms of morale. And one thing I'm going to do, I think next year is I'll do the same survey, but I'll do it for people who work at breweries not in the brew house, mm-hmm. so everybody else, yeah, and see how they're paid and see what they're doing and. Maybe I'll ask a question just listening to this. Maybe I should ask a question and say, did you ever work as a brewer? Right. That would be an interesting question to see. People are leaving the brew house and going into management or, you know, marketing or who knows what. Yeah. Well, kudos to you. This is a, a very interesting and useful um, survey. And uh, Well, I thank you. It's, um, <laughs> it's actually gratifying to hear you say that because you actually do research for a living. So, yeah. Well, data, data is good uh, always. If, if data is good. Data is good. If, if good data is good, yes. Good. <laughs> so good data is good. I, I, I feel uh, I'm breathing a sigh of relief. Well, uh, as we talked about, we're we're being good sober economists today, and it's early, so we're not doing any tasting uh, today. But you did have uh, a beer sherpa recommendation today. So I, let's hear it. I did. So uh, my friend Stan Hieronymus, uh, beer writer, was in town uh, this last week. In fact, he was in town partly because uh, the Benedictine Brewery is now open for business. The monks down at Mount, Mount, Mount Angel. Angel. Oh, nice. And I spoke to Father uh, Martin there about whether he would like to do a future podcast, and he's interested in that. So Ooh. you and I will talk Good about get. that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I think it is um, one of the most you know interesting quirks in beer is that you have monks making it. Yeah. And um, these guys are actual... Uh, the monks put it together. Father Martin was the procurator uh, at the monastery, which is sort of the money guy, the mm-hmm. CFO, so to speak. Right. And he saw this as a money-making venture, and he put it together. And they have monks doing the brewing. Mm-hmm. They have some outside uh, help, but uh, monks are going to be doing the brewing. So it's it's fascinating. So yeah. anyway, um, Stan and I have been um, 
I hesitate to say advisors uh, because I've done very little advising, but uh, sounding boards. Yeah, we have been involved in since the early talk discussions. So he was in town, and then um, later on we went out for beers and we went to a place that you and I have been to together too, uh, but which I don't talk about enough, and I just want to shine. Okay. Shine some light on them and give them some love. Little Beast is the brewery. They have, interestingly, um, occupied another of the Lompox failed or abandoned locations. Mm-hmm. Um, this wonderful little house that's on Division Street in, in Southeast Portland, very centrally located. If people come to Portland, you should definitely consider going to Little Beast. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice pub. And on a sunny day, which we're now for the next six months, this is not going to apply, but they have a wonderful <laughs> outdoor seating uh, under the trees, sort of like a almost a beer garden mm-hmm. atmosphere. But really the main reason to go is because Charles Porter, the guy who founded it, uh, is, a, is a veteran from uh, Logston Farmhouse Ales, and he started his own brewery, which is, which is Little Beast, and he does mostly, uh, or he specializes in um, barrel-aged uh, wild ales uh-huh. and he just does an exceptional job with them and I feel like uh, Little Beast hasn't been getting an, as much attention as it probably should nationally or even in the region mm-hmm. so if you go there um, there's a lot of great beer that you could have and they have a couple of uh, flagships they always have on um, barrel age saisons or wild saisons which are great but I'm going to recommend Tree Spirit which is a fantastic name which is a cherry beer uh, mm-hmm. made with Mont Morency cherries? Is that how you say that? Uh, that's how I would say it. Yes. All right. Well, let's say that. <laughs> and the reader, the listeners can uh, correct us if we're wrong. Uh, it is perfectly balanced. You get that quality of the cherry pit, which is a kind of cinnamon note that comes through once it's, it's been aged on it. Um, lush. Uh, Rich. If they don't have it on tap, they usually have bottles, so you can order a bottle, and they'll come out and decant it and talk to you about it. Um, I would call it one of the better wild ales that I've I've had uh, in America. I think it's a really wonderful beer, and so uh, people should be going more to Little Beast. And I, as a evangelist, should be talking about it more. So now you now you know. Yeah, Little it's been Beast. a while since we we went together, so I'll have to go back. Yeah, and good try stuff. The, and try this out. I haven't had it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, that basically does it because um, uh, our our mailbag is empty. Yeah, and I know we have we have continued to be slightly inconsistent in our podcasting, which makes the mailbag inconsistent. But um, please do uh, send us your comments and, and stuff, and we'll we'll get that in there. We I, I, we do get some comments, but if they're not, um, we're we're not doing it so often. So uh, if they're not a question or like pithy i sometimes don't respond to them so we are getting a few comments and i appreciate those so please send us your comments but yeah. i'm also asking your questions and, and you can send questions if you have a question direct question or comment to jeff at beervanablog.com or you can visit the beervanablog facebook page where you'll find a link to our to his where what brewers earn report uh, uh and of course um you can find us on twitter uh, jeff is at beervana and i'm at beeronomics um so thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Of course, rate us if you like us. Don't rate us if you don't. Uh, subscribe to us. Um, what else are you supposed to do to make us uh, better? Help listeners find us. I guess that's it. Um, yeah. Anything else, Jeff? No, that seems good. All right. Um, we got nothing to uh, cheers with except our beautiful voices. Yes. Well, 
uh, as sober economists, that's appropriate. Uh, we didn't have coffee cups because I because you're full of coffee and I didn't make a cup. So. But it's yeah, but it's Friday, so we'll have beer later. All right. Uh, In fact, uh, I'm heading to the coast, and we're going to be staying in Pacific City, and I will be tonight. Uh, I, I think guarantee I know where you're going to be. <laughs> I will be sitting in uh, Pelican Brewing. Hopefully, I don't. I can't remember if they have, uh, and I can't believe I haven't talked about this. I don't if they, if they have a. I hope they have a video. Oh, they're gonna have the socks on. Yeah, watch my beloved uh, Red Sox, who you can even get behind because they're sort of an ancestral rooting interest there, and they're playing your loathed Dodgers. Yeah, my dad was born and raised in Boston and lived actually pretty close to Fenway Park and used to have tales in the 1950s of Ted Williams and others would walk nice. be walking home from the baseball stadium <laughs> and would stop in the park in front of his house and play catch. That's the old days when you know, they weren't super times. duper 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 stars. But he was a yeah, he was a died in the wool Red Sox fan. My whole entire life had the old school pessimism. Always knew that bright starts of the season would always be end in failure and never. But luckily, he lived long enough to actually see them win the World Series. So that's good. Um, but he he moved away from Boston to go to college in in uh, California, and so I was uh, raised a Giants fan, which also went through a suddenly weird period of, of success. So the world's topsy-turvy. It is topsy-turvy, but that means you do hate the Dodgers, yes? It, that, that was, yeah, that was my next point, which is that there's nothing worse. Than, so in both ways, my, my, uh, my, um, my birthright uh, uh, Red Sox fandom and my loathing of the Dodgers uh, makes me root for the, the Red Sox. But I have to say, as a pluralist, and the fact that I then moved and and uh, spent middle school and high school in Wisconsin. I was really bright uh, for the Brewers. I was too. Um, I was really pulling for them. And there's such an interesting story that had they got to the World Series, I would have had a slightly, I would have had a tinge of regret as the Red Sox crushed them under their big deal. <laughs> Besides, they're called the Brewers. How can you not? Exactly. Love them? <laughs> I know. And I, you and I, the very first Red Sox, or the very first base MLB game I ever went to was at County Stadium. Old County Stadium. Old County Stadium. God bless it. Uh, back rest in, the in peace. early 90s, and uh, we got to see the sausage races, and we got to see the guy go down the slide. That's the right, beer. there was a home run, so we got to see. <laughs> it, was, it was like, this is amazing. This is very cool. So, yeah, yeah the Brewers, it's they're awesome. They're all right. All right, Jeff. Uh, well, uh, until next time. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.